Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Um, a, a lot of the content of 9, 10, and 11, it's complex. Uh, there is, a, yet again, logical arguments being built. Um, it's, it's one of those amazing things. You know, you spend hours and hours in the text. And even this morning, I had a light bulb moment of understanding some things in verses 6 through 13. So just there's multiple layers of depth that are, that are here. And so last week we began uh, to, to walk through this verse by verse. We made it through the first three verses. We're primarily going to study verses four through nine. I'm going to back up and read one through nine for a bit of context here. And then, uh, then we'll begin to pray and look through it together. So if you'll begin in verse one there. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, God, we come and we bow ourselves before you and we pray, feed us from your word. God, we believe what you have told us. That there are, there are things that you want to accomplish the coming of your kingdom, the building of your church, the saving of souls, the purifying, sanctifying, growing of your people. These are things that cannot come be accomplished by human effort. These are things which can only happen by your power coming from heaven. You call us to participate. There's work you tell us to do, but Lord, it's the methods that you have given the things that the world would, would think strange and they think it's old fashioned and powerless. And there's the temptation to change and remake things. But God, you've told us how you bring your power. You've told us how you accomplish your things. And so Lord, we believe you. We believe that the, the preaching, the studying of your word is how you bring your kingdom and grow your church and call the lost to yourself and sanctify your people. And so God, we come with faith, trusting in your methods and what you do and pray, oh God, please work. We ask God that you'll work in this time, all who are going to hear, 
Father, I pray for any lost in the room that this would be the, the day that they're, they're drawn to true saving faith. And Lord, for your sons and daughters who have trusted in Christ, show us more of your plan of redemption. Show us more of the gospel. Show us more of how it is you've brought this grace to us, so God, that we'll see uh, its beauty, we'll see your glory, and Lord, be changed in it. So Father, please come and bless. I ask you, bless this time. Protect it from all the distractions and things that could come. Uh, call our attention to yourself. Help me to preach and be faithful. Bless us to worship as we receive. Bless our little ones, O oh God, as they hear your word and sing songs and memorize your truths, O oh God. Give them grace and call them to yourself. Please bless, O oh Lord. And we pray these things through the name of our Savior. Amen. Abraham Piper is a TikToker with more than 900,000 followers. Now, if you're not familiar with TikTok, um, good. Uh, it's another one of these social media apps that, you know, probably pass away in 15 minutes, whatever. But this one is quick videos. So a lot of them are funny videos, but people also use them for their political agendas or all kinds of other things. But Abraham Piper, He's a TikToker, 900,000 followers. And he's devoted himself, the content of his videos is all aimed at mocking Christianity, making fun of the gospel. He really sets his crosshairs and takes aim on Christian parents uh, who raise their children according to the, uh, the word of God. And, and for just a second, let that number sink in. That is nearly a million souls who have subscribed to their preacher, the one they want to hear every word of this shepherd as he leads them away from faith and to embrace secularism. Now that's troubling, but I wouldn't really tell you that story if he was just some random guy. What makes that heartbreaking is that Abraham Piper comes from a long lineage of faithful believers, including ministers of the gospel. He is one of the sons of the much loved John Piper. One of the most influential Bible teachers, uh, at least in North America, probably the world, one of my favorite preachers to listen to, to feed my soul. His grandpa was a faithful evangelist who devoted his life to making the gospel known. He comes from a rich heritage of earnest Christians, and he was given every encouragement to follow Christ, yet by his own very public admission, and that's why I believe it's appropriate to use a specific name in an illustration, this is very public, by his own admission, he rejected faith in Christ because he wanted to drink gallons of wine and sleep around. But his pedigree, his lineage, that rich heritage that he came from makes his situation all the more, all the more grievous, all the more tragic, all the more serious for his own soul. You remember that Jesus addressed the religious crowd in his day and he, he told them that the opportunities that they were receiving, the knowledge of the scriptures that they had been given and then to hear the words of life come from Jesus himself meant he said that it would be better for Sodom on the day of judgment 
than for you. Because the more opportunity, the more knowledge, the more grace you are given, the more expectation, the more responsibility there is before God. Remember Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. But human nature is depraved. How depraved is human nature? Just how inclined towards sin are we? I, I think this is part of the point of why God has worked the way that he has and why what's revealed in the Old Testament that we follow the storyline of a people group who were given so many graces and we see what happened with that. How depraved is human nature? It's such that someone can be raised with the greatest treasure presented before their eyes every single day the words of life, the greatest news in all of the universe, the words of salvation can be heard by someone every single day and they can still reject it and choose destruction. Just because someone has the treasure presented to them every single day doesn't mean they'll eat from the feast that's been presented. They might like the mud better. And in our passage, what we see happening is we see God describing these, this, this multitude of graces, the incredible privilege that the nation of Israel had been given. But instead we see what they did with that grace. God gave that group of people a thousand gifts. Uh, uh, every encouragement, giving them his scriptures, giving them encouragement to come to life. I mean, we remember those times in the Old Testament where uh, God would speak through Moses and he would say, today I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Choose life. But we see what they did with that grace. Now, over the course of these three chapters, we're going to see that even this, even their rejection, it fits into the sovereign plan of God that even this had been ordained by God. And we're going to see that how the way that God brought it about means that the grace of the gospel has come to us. Okay. It, 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 probably at some point in this, I'm going to do a whole section on why do these truths matter? I, I get it that when you study through not all Israel is Israel and some of these kinds of truths, you might be like, what, why is this truth so important? You and I would not have the gospel. You and I would still be worshiping images of gold and silver from our pagan ancestry if God had not worked in the ways that he had to bring the message of the gospel to us by this unique plan of redemption that he is unfolding in this world. You know, why, why do these things matter? This is how the gospel came to you. So if you have any joy in the fact that God has delivered you from hell and has given you eternal life, you who are in Christ, we want to see how it is he brought these things about. So we see his ordained plan, but th that'll be some of the, what we see in the future. For now, what we see, and particularly this morning, we're going to see the opportunity of grace that God gave this group, what they did with that opportunity 
And then that is then used to show one of the one of the really critical truths from Romans 9. What really is the heart, the central idea of this chapter that we're going to see. And that is an explanation of who the true people of God are. Who the true people of God are. They are those who possess eternal life. But they're not just those who come from some family, physically, some bloodline. They are the children of the promise, the true Israel. So I, I noted last week that uh, verses 1 through 29 has four main points that it makes. We started uh, point one last week, Paul's grief and sorrow over Israel's rejection of Christ, rejection of salvation. And so uh, we, we walked through the first two sub points of that. We're going to pick up in the final part of that first point, and we're going to see how it transitions us then to this next point. So point number two, and that will be who true Israel is the children of promise. So we're in point number one. This is the third sub point. If you're a note taker, keeping track. So letter C under point number one. And here's, here's the title I'm giving it. He describes the privileges Israel had, which should have led them to salvation. So notice how this unfolds in, in verses four through five. Um, he obviously identifies who it is that he's speaking of there. At the end of verse three, you notice verse three there, he's, he's speaking of my brethren. Now, who does he mean by that phrase, my brethren? Because this is also language that he uses to speak of Christians. Okay. But that's not who he's addressing here. He clarifies that the, my brethren here, keep, keep reading there. Uh, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then the beginning of verse four, who are Israelites. But that phrase that he uses there, according to the flesh, it's a really important phrase that he uses. It, it's a hint of what is to come. He's clarifying some things. The reason why that phrase is so critical is because the whole point of what he's about to explain is that not every individual born from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not everyone physically from this people group of Israel is born again, is right with God, who possesses eternal life. Those Israelites who trusted in God with saving faith, that's the true Israel, what we might call the spiritual Israel. So this is where he's going. He's talking about first his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he expresses his grief that the majority, not all, remember this, but the majority had rejected Christ. But then what happens is he begins to describe Israel. He begins to describe this nation, this people group. And what he's describing, notice this about what he mentions in verses four and five as he lists off all of these graces. He is giving a list of all of the reasons why this group should be Christians. If anybody on the earth should love Jesus, it should be them. God had given them all of these graces, all of this truth, all of this revelation. You know, we read the Old Testament, understanding the New Testament, and we see hundreds of ways that the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus. If anybody on the earth should believe and trust, it is this 
group. And so that's the point of what he's going to say. Now, let me let me give a word of caution from the beginning. And we're going to need to remember this word of caution repeatedly as we go through this. We're going to be talking about a group of people. We're going to be talking about a nation of people. And there can be a temptation as we talk about them and talk about some of the shortcomings and some of the failures and some of the sin. There's a temptation. There's a temptation that in our heart, we might grow some pride, maybe even grow some contempt. Think, oh, you know, those idiots. Well, what were they thinking? Those guys. No, no, no. That, that, that is evil. And it's one of the things that will actually come up later on in this series of 9, 10, and 11, that that very thing is going to be kind of a finger point and be like, be careful. Do not grow arrogant whenever you think about what has come with this group of people because it is only God's grace that came and saved you. God had to walk pretty far out into the woods to go cut off your olive branch and go bring you and graft you into this tree. Branches were broken off of the tree from unbelief, but you take heed lest you fall. So there's a great warning that is given there. And, I, you know, especially in kind of our culture today, there's all this nervousness because of all that's going on with wokeism and all these things, all this nervousness about talking about different groups of people. OK, this is in the Bible. We're talking about history. We're talking about things that are just there. It's truth that is there. We need to be careful that we not have pride and contempt grow in our hearts. But we are shown these truths to consider. And there is warning to us as well. God gave this group of people, the nation of Israel, a thousand graces, a thousand privileges ahead of the rest of the world, born into the one nation on the entire earth that was given the scriptures in the Old Testament. That has now changed in the New Testament. And that's all part of the newness of the new covenant that God has now opened the doors and the windows of heaven to pour out grace on all the tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations of the earth as the message of the gospel has gone to them. But there was a time when that group were the keepers of the scriptures. They were the ones that the word of God was first given to. So notice the graces that are mentioned here. Verse four. He's, I'm, I'm going to take each of these phrases and just say something quick about it so that we see what's being said there. To whom belongs the adoption as sons? Now, this doesn't mean that every individual Israelite was adopted in a, a salvation kind of way. There was a kind of way that God adopted this nation. That language is used in the Old Testament. But the adoption that we've looked at in Romans 8 uh, of adoption in salvation, that, that is not to every single Israelite. But part of the point is the opportunity was given. The opportunity was first explained and first expressed to them. If anyone on the earth should be adopted, it should be them. Then he continues on and the glory. G God offered that people group a position of prominence among the nations of the earth, if they would have lived in submission to them, in submission to the Lord. God offered them a place of glory. And there's a lot that could be seen there. He noticed, he continues on, and the covenants. 
God graciously entered into numerous covenants with them, offering blessings, offering a great, even more uh, grace to them. And the giving of the law, he mentions there. Now, the law of God is written on every human heart in that, in that way that the conscience speaks. There's an internal witness of the law of God. But to this group of people, to the nation of Israel, God wrote it out in words, gave it to them and gave it to them in their scriptures. He, he, he gave them the Ten Commandments, the great summary of the law. He wrote on tablets of stone and gave it to them. I mean, we're not exaggerating to say that they received a thousandfold more revelation than the rest of the world had at that time when God revealed himself, revealed his truths. He continues on, and the temple service. You know, in the temple, with all of its sacrifices and all of its ceremonies, God revealed true religion, true worship. What does it mean to truly know God and truly engage with God? God revealed all of that in the temple, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the, the priesthood, all of those kinds of things. Now, now, so listen, it wasn't the final revelation of the form of worship. So we're in the new covenant and we have a different form of worship. At no part of our worship this morning did we kill a goat. Okay. Okay. We have a new form of worship, but, but understand this. The New Testament tells us we have to go back to the Old Testament and read and study in order to even understand what's happening here. What, why is it when we sing hymns, that's called a sacrifice of praise? You got to understand the Old Testament in order to understand what that even means. Okay. Um, you will not understand worship if you do not understand the book of Leviticus. You will not understand what true religion is if you do not study the Old Testament. And so God has changed the form, but he taught all of the foundations of theology in the law, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, the ceremonies. We know true religion by going back and reading those things and seeing how it's been fulfilled in Christ. God gave them true worship and true religion. He revealed himself. And the promises, multitudes of promises of blessing were given to them if they would have devoted themselves to the Lord. He continues on, whose are the fathers? God gave them a rich heritage of godly men and women. When he, when he speaks of the fathers, a lot of this would refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, towering figures, towering uh, spiritual giants like Moses and David. And there's, there's an advantage that comes with that, by the way. If you're a first generation Christian, meaning like in your, in your, your parents, grandparents, you don't know if any of them were Christians and you're the first from your line to turn to Christ that you know of, a first generation Christian you know, praise God, he saved you. That's uncanny that you weren't raised in that and he saved you. Work hard, work really hard to make progress and have your family line turn a different direction. But you do, you do got to understand that when there is a godly kind of heritage, there are advantages that those children enjoy. You know, uh, for instance, from the time you're two years old learning catechism questions, 
being filled with the knowledge of God, being raised in this. And when you have towering spiritual giants in your family, like you can look to your dad or your grandpa and there's a spiritual giant, there's incredible advantage there. God, God gave to Israel some of these examples. There's something that compels you to want to be like a David if David were in your ancestry line kind of thing. God gave them the fathers. He gave them a rich heritage. And then, and then notice this next one. And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? God gave Israel the incredible privilege of getting to be the people group of the earth that brought the Messiah into the world. And that should have been a cause of great rejoicing. That should have been one of those things that they wrote new songs of celebration about, that they got the privilege of getting to be the group of people that God brought the Redeemer into the world. Now salvation will go to the ends of the earth and there should have been celebration over the fact that the gospel would now go to the ends of the earth. But instead of rejoicing in that, we see what Israel did. Again, not every one of them, Paul himself was an Israelite, but we see the majority. Instead, what was the reaction? They rejected and murdered their Messiah rejected and murdered their Messiah. And then this is one of the things that comes up in the book of Acts. They despised the idea that salvation would ever go to other people groups of the earth. They hated the idea that Paul said he has sent me to go bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. And that rejection represents great treason against the kingdom. God formed Israel. He created this nation like they didn't even exist from their very conception. When God came to Abraham, they were marked off by God to receive grace. God gave them privilege that the rest of the world did not get to have. Now, it's really important that we understand this part. God did not have to show grace to anyone. God did not have to show grace to even a single person. We are a planet inhabited by death row inmates. Like planet earth is death row. Okay. What, what's death row? The place you're confined while you await your death sentence. Planet earth is death row. We are a race of criminals, a race of lawbreakers. We've broken the will of God. There is punishment that we deserve. What did he say will come on the day of sin, death? And not just the, the piddly little physical death. That is nothing compared to the full measure and the full definition of what real, full, eternal death actually is. We, we are a race of lawbreakers waiting for that punishment. And, and God does not have to give grace to anyone. Strict justice is you break the law, you get punishment. Now, it is a case in justice, however, that mercy is an option. It's written into American law. The governor can pardon a criminal, can take them off of death row and even release them, 
Mercy is an option, but it is not obligated. It's not owed to anyone. That's the very definition of mercy. You don't understand mercy if you think that somebody owes it to you or anybody else. We are a planet of death row inmates and salvation is the invitation that God has given mercy from heaven. You know, how amazing is this? God has worked it that anybody who wants mercy can come and get it. Anybody who wants delivered from their death sentence can come and receive this mercy. But God has chosen a unique plan in how all of this is coming about in how this grace is going to the ends of the earth and understanding all of this with the Jews and the Gentiles and how does it all fit together and how is God working in one people group more than another at this time, but then give it a hundred years and he's, he's, he's now working big time in this people group. All of this kind of stuff is understanding his great plan of redemption and how he's saving souls from every tribe, every tongue, every people and every nation. But understand this, God owes it to no one. And that's one of the ways, by the way, that people get predestination wrong when they get angry about it. They was like, well, that's not fair. God has to give everybody exactly the same. Communist, that's not reality. God has the right to do with his grace and his riches what he pleases. He has the right to bring this plan about in any way that he wishes. This is what God has chosen to do. God has chosen to give grace in different ways, in different places. We fall on our faces and weep in gratitude that he gave us the grace of drawing us to himself. You got to be born in a place that you heard the gospel. You, you got to be born in a family or a situation that somehow you encountered the gospel. That is God's grace coming to you drawing you to himself, but understand he doesn't owe it to you. He doesn't owe it to anyone. All of the nations went astray. All of the people groups, okay? Genesis 10, the table of nations, they all left God. He didn't owe mercy to any of them, but he chose to bring about a great plan in which he'd bring mercy to all the nations somehow at some point. But in doing that, he came to one nation first. In fact, he created this nation, came to Abraham, and in an impossible situation, because Sarah could not have a son, he said, I will make Sarah have a son. And he formed a nation, and he chose to give great grace to this one people group before he gave it to all of the rest. Now, here's where we got to make a big distinction and understand. The grace that he gave this people group, the physical people group, was not eternal salvation to every single one of them, but it was encouragement to salvation. He revealed the way to be saved. He gave them a thousand graces which should have encouraged them to salvation, but that does not mean that every one of them took advantage of that. And it's not what we see for a long time, they were the only people group of the earth that had these opportunities that are listed here in verses four and five. So what does that mean? It means they should have responded to the Lord in faith and worship. He's given this group exceeding grace. 
Gospel privileges first. You remember this part as well. Romans 1, 16 and 17, we said, you know, the central idea and those truths carry us thou throughout the rest of the first 11 chapters of Romans. And one of the things that we see there is that the gospel is for the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. Why is it to the Jew first and what does that mean? God gave them a place of priority. Some people don't like that. Tough. You're not sovereign. Create your own universe. You can do it how you want. He gave them a place of priority. He sent Jesus to them first so that they would hear the gospel first. And what it means is that there's a greater responsibility that lay on them to receive it. But we see what's happened. There's been a rejection and these three chapters are going to explain how that has then been part of God's plan to then go to the other nations of the earth. He has the right to do it however he wants. Now, before we leave verse five, however, so I've, I've told you the main thrust of what's there, the main idea. There's one more little truth, and I guess it's not little, it's a parenthesis. It's not part of the main idea, but it's a big truth at the end of verse five there. And I want to point it out to you. At the very end of verse five, it speaks of Christ. And then notice this, and it says, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. That statement is a statement of deity, the deity of the Lord Jesus. Now, it might not sound like it at first, but there's a title for God that is used in the Bible, and it is the title to call him the blessed one or the blessed one. That title has been used even in this letter. If you're in Romans, flip back to chapter one for a second. Uh, one, verse 25, uh, read along with me there what it says. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now look at the rest of the verse there. Who is blessed forever. Amen. What happens there is that when Paul speaks of God the Father, he then gives a, a statement of doxology, okay? A statement giving glory and worship to God who is blessed forever, amen. In the first century, they all understood what that meant to speak of God with this statement of worship. Do you see what happens here in Romans 9? He speaks of the Lord Jesus and says, God blessed forever, amen. This is a statement of worship. All right, now back to the text. Here's the turn. Here's the transition. The list of the privileges have been given. Then verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So point number two is who true Israel is. The children of promise. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Why does he, why does he say that statement? It's because some people, some of these new Jewish Christians were confused about what was happening. And I think that if we put ourselves in their shoes, we can understand the confusion. We can understand how they came to some of these things. These new Jewish Christians, they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And in the Old Testament scriptures, what does it say about the days of the Messiah? Well, it says things like these rich blessings from heaven will pour out blessing and salvation will come. There'll be deliverance. The, the throne of David will be established again. There's, there's all of this talk about the days of the Messiah. Well, 
I think if I were living then and I had read that, I would assume that when the Messiah came, everyone would embrace him. And one of the things that they missed was that the days of the Messiah in his fullness are yet to come. And there is a period when the Messiah would be rejected. And so these new Jewish Christians, they come to faith in Christ. God sent the Messiah. Yay, Jesus, he came. Yay, we're saved. And then they look around in confusion as the majority of their countrymen are rejecting Christ. And so they're asking Paul questions like, I, I don't get it. What's going on here? Didn't God promise blessing and salvation? So 9, 10, and 11 is in a sense answering these kinds of questions. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Okay, so speaking of the Messiah, there'll be a branch who grows and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. I'm resisting big temptations not to preach a whole sermon and go off on that last phrase right there. Jesus is called the Lord, our righteousness. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is how he's brought salvation. He is our righteousness and he is called the Lord. The word Lord there, by the way, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the divine name, Yahweh, Jehovah, our righteousness. This is good stuff, guys. Okay, I'll back away. I'm resisting the temptations there. Jesus is called the Lord, our righteousness. But here's what was said. The branch will come, the Messiah will come, the Lord our righteousness, and Judah will be saved. Same thing said in Jeremiah 30, verse 10, Do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you. I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. All kinds of other places we could go to. Where, where the Lord gave promise of blessing. And the greatest blessing is salvation. Greatest blessing is salvation. Your stupid money is going to burn. The greatest blessing is salvation. In the end, it's the only thing that matters. All kinds of other places gave this promise. But many of them came to a wrong conclusion. They came to a wrong interpretation of these verses. And we can understand how it happened, but this is part of what's being revealed in the New Testament. So here's, here's the wrong conclusion that many of them came to. They read Jeremiah 23 and 30, and they said, oh, this means that all of our countrymen, according to the flesh, everybody who's born of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will, we're all saved. We're all have, we all have eternal life. And then remember false teaching, false ideas, when they're given time, they get worse, okay? They then wrongly came to this conclusion, and there will be no Gentiles there. God doesn't care about the Gentiles. And so part of what's happening in Romans 9 and really with the revelation of the new covenant is that God was showing you misunderstood those verses. You, you misunderstood what those were saying because here's a critical question. Who is Israel? Think about it. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30, tons of other places. I will save Israel. Here's the question. Who is the true Israel? Who will be saved? 
Look at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Or the ESV reads, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The King James reads, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Here's a, here's a little phrase that's been used in English a lot of times, and it is, not all Israel is Israel. And so here's what this means. Not every individual who is physically born from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from this Jewish people group according to the flesh, is actually a part of what we might call the true Israel, or the spiritual Israel, or Jesus used the language of an Israelite indeed. Paul used the language of the Israel of God. So in other words, there are two ways the word Israel is used in this passage. One is referring to the physical people group, the whole nation. The other is referring to this group that is known by God, those who are truly saved. Those who possess eternal life, those who have a place in, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, those who will be with God, they are righteous before God. So many misunderstood the word of God to think that everybody born from this physical bloodline was right with God just because of the family they were born to. But that's not how it works. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. That's about like thinking that a man is right with God just because he shows up to church. Walks through the physical doors of a physical building and sits his physical butt in a physical seat. Therefore, he's right with God. Or because uh, a man or a woman uh, makes themselves a member of an earthly local church to think that that saves them or to think that there is some earthly work that I can do that will save me. So many times people misunderstand baptism, that they think that the act of baptism, if I do that now, I've been made right with God. I've been saved. That's not how it works. There's a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. There is a difference between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. Just like there's a difference between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is what you and I see with our physical eyes. You know, we have a local church family here. We look around. This is the visible church. The invisible church is the church as it really is. It's the, it's the church as God sees it, and the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows who is his church. So this distinction, us understanding how this works, guys, this is related to more than just Israel and Israel. This is the visible church, the invisible church. This is how, how are we made right with God? Is it by physical things that I can do, or is it by a miracle from heaven? God's ways are not our ways. And so us understanding this, this is critical to us understanding the, the kingdom of God. If I ask you, what is the kingdom of God? There has to be some level of understanding of the physical as distinct from the spiritual. What we see versus what God knows to be true. 
And you'll notice this false religion is all the time. False religion is all the time taking, you know, uh, salvation and it makes it, you know, something that I can accomplish by human effort. Salvation is something that is so big, so powerful, it can only be accomplished by the power of God from heaven. But man-made religion is always reworking it to make it accomplishable by human effort. So if you take salvation and say, well, if you keep these seven sacraments and you do these works that I tell you to do, then you'll be okay. It happens in Baptist churches, by the way, same thing, just different kinds of ways. If you pray, if you verbalize the words that I tell you to say in a prayer, you go get baptized, you show up to church and you bring your Bible, then you're good. Oh, wait, and tithe, then you're good. You do those things and then, then you're good. False religion is always reducing something that can only be done by the power of God down to something that I can manage. Kind of like, here's a little sneak peek hint at next week. Kind of like God telling Abraham and Sarah, you'll have a son. And Abraham and Sarah think, we better help God out with this. We, we can do this. We'll figure out a way to have a child, not from the impossible kind of way of power from heaven. It's the difference between the flesh and the spirit. False religion is all the time saying, if you're a part of this earthly group, you know, make yourself a part of this earthly group, then you're, then you're safe. And, and listen, guys, when you study church history, you study a long history of heresies, a long history of false religion stuff that comes up. Now that troubles a lot of people, but you got to realize Jesus said this was going to happen. Okay. Jesus said that savage wolves will arise even from within the church. There is an enemy who hates you, hates God, hates the gospel, hates the church. Don't be surprised when the enemy jumps forward to hate you, hate God, hate the gospel, and hate the church, okay? Sometimes when people study church history and they see all these false, false religion stuff and all of these heresies, they're all like, oh, this scares me, I've got doubt. It, this is what Jesus said would happen, okay? If anything, it should bolster your faith because exactly what he said would take place would take place. I give you that introduction because I'm about to tell you some. In church history, one of the things that began to happen was uh, the rise of uh, bishops, now, this is not prescribed by the Bible, okay? But these bishops would come to power and they would have authority over the church in certain areas, okay? Well, human nature is depraved. And people will even use the church to feel good about themselves and get power. So all over the place, there were these bishops that were kind of in competition with one another and a lot of corruption entered in. And, and then, you know, they all had these aspirations for world dominance. Some of these bishops had more power than kings, and there came a time when the biggest bishop of the West thought to himself, you know, I want to rule the world. And he declared himself to be the head of the church. Now that's a blasphemous statement. That's a blasphemous statement. There's only one head of the church and his name is the Lord Jesus. There's no mere human who is the head of the church. But the biggest bishop in the West declared himself to be the head of the church. And then in reaction to that, the biggest bishop in the East, using all of his theological expertise, said, no, -uh, I am. <laughs> and so then they had this uh, war with each other in words and really spiritual day. They both excommunicated each other from the church. 
And they told the, their followers, you know, the guy in the east and the guy in the west, and they both said, if you're with me, then you're saved. If you're with him, you're going to hell. That, by the way, is the origin of the Catholic Pope. And that, by the way, is how the distinction came between the church in the West, what became later became known as the Catholic Church, and then the church in the East. You can see false religion just keeps recycling itself over and over and over again. Satan only has so many tricks. He just keeps repackaging them every century. The same kind of stuff just keeps happening. And there's really the same kind of idea here. If I belong to some physical earthly group, then I'm saved. I'm okay. But what is explained here in Romans 9 is what was part of what we're seeing here is it's not attachment with anything earthly that will save you. It is attachment to Christ. It is attachment to the Lord Jesus. And if you are attached by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are sons and daughters of Abraham. You are children of the promise. So you notice that language. If you, if you look at verse eight there, we're still not uh, up to the place that we're going to logically work through everything that he says. But you notice there that that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Those who possess eternal life. Those who are right with God. He calls them a name here. You know, the Bible gives a lot of different names and titles for the, the true born again sons and daughters of God. I even just use some in describing it. You know, those who are in Christ. A lot of different names. A lot of different descriptors in the Bible are used. They're called the sons of God in places that highlight adoption. They're called the redeemed. They're called the children of light. Those who were born again, those who are born of God, they're called believers. Now let me give a parenthesis there though. And it's very much connected to what we're talking about. We, there's some explanation that's needed if you call somebody a believer. The New Testament clearly explains that there are different kinds of faith and not every one of them is a saving kind of faith. The book of James describes for us that the demons believe they acknowledge God's existence, but they don't even like him. That's not a saving kind of faith. And so the Bible makes the distinction that, that you and I must be sure that we have the saving kind of faith and not a faith that just acknowledges that he's there and we recognize truths uh, of the Bible. So somebody could say that they're a believer and it might be the case in a kind of sense. And the point that I'm trying to make here is there's a reason why the Bible gives a lot of description, a lot of different names, a lot of different explanation of who the true people of God are who are right with him and who have eternal life. We sometimes use the language of the regenerate. Now that title is not used in the Bible, but we're referring to regeneration, the new birth, which is mentioned in the Bible. So for instance, we sometimes talk about regenerate church membership. What that means is we will not knowingly receive one, some, someone as a member who has not been born again. Now, obviously, there's that aspect with the visible and the invisible church and some things we cannot see and cannot know, but we will not knowingly do it. We go by a, a lot of different titles. And here's another one given. Verse 8, the children of the promise. 
the children of the promise, as opposed to the children of the flesh. There's a difference between a church goer and a born again child of God. Just like there's a difference between a physical Israelite and a spiritual Israelite. And the term that this passage uses to speak of the true Israel is the children of the promise. Now, we've already seen some of this introduced in this book. Uh, Flip back just very briefly, very briefly to chapter two. And I am winding down here. Chapter two, look at verse 28. For he is not a Jew who was one outwardly. That, That was kind of a, not just kind of, that was a really controversial statement in the first century when he said this, he's not a Jew who was one outwardly, nor is circumcision, that that act that marked off the Jews, a physical mark there, nor is circumcision, so we might say, nor is true circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly spiritual and circumcision. True circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter and his praises, not from men, but from God. We did a whole sermon on what true circumcision is. It is a reference to conversion, repentance, the cutting away, the painful cutting away of the flesh. That's repentance. So the physical act was meant to preach a spiritual reality. Understand that. And you understand some of the point of what is being made here in Romans nine, a physical people, There's a distinction between them and the spiritual people. A true Jew is not just one outwardly, but inwardly. And we see this revealed. Abraham was a man of faith. And if you are of the same kind of faith, you are sons and daughters of Abraham. Even though you may not have been born from the bloodline of Abraham, if you are of the same faith as Abraham, you are sons and daughters of Abraham, children of the promise. So this is a big revelation. This is a big revelation. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30, God will save Israel. Who is the true Israel? Part of what God has revealed in the new covenant is, it's not just the physical group. It is those who are children of the promise. He who is a Jew, inwardly circumcised of heart. Who is the true Israel? It is those who are of faith in Christ. Not all Israel is Israel. So I'm hoping by the end of the explanation here that for the rest of your life, when you hear this phrase, not all Israel is Israel, these truths come back to you. The children of the promise are those who trust in Christ. You must be a child of Abraham according to faith, not just flesh. So now let me, let me close with this. Ask this question. What about you individually? What about you individually? Do you think that you will be in heaven when you die? When we ask that question, I mean, basically everybody always answers yes. That should be a warning in itself. Jesus said the way is narrow and few find it. And yet everybody answers, yes, I'll be in heaven. So let me me ask you, do you believe you will be in heaven when you die? The next logical question is, why? Why do you think that? If your answer has anything to do with something you think you have done, which makes you right with God, you misunderstand the gospel. You misunderstand the true nature of what it means to be saved as a miracle from heaven. 
You must be saved, the Bible says. But there is nothing you can do that will make you right with God and get you good enough for eternal life. No amount of church attendance, no, you get baptized a thousand times. It isn't going to gain you access to heaven. You need a miracle from heaven. But here's the beautiful promise. Turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This can happen where you sit right now. Place your faith in Christ. Even in the silence, uh, uh, physical silence, but in your own heart, call out to him and ask him to save you. You trust him and what happens is the miracle from heaven happens. You don't do the miracle. You believe and you receive from heaven the power of God saving your soul. You cannot make yourself fit from heaven, fit for heaven. Only God can believe on the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I ask that you'll take the truths we've considered and you will clarify our understanding of the world, our understanding of you, our understanding of the gospel and salvation. Please, Lord, I pray, show us more and bring us to glorify you. I also pray, O oh God, that you give grace to any in the room that have not yet placed their faith in Christ. They may be believers of some kind, acknowledging that you're there, but have not believed with saving faith. Please, O oh God, show them their need, grant them faith, draw them to yourself. Please give us your blessing as we leave, O oh God. I ask your grace on the mothers um, in our congregation. Please give comfort to the hurting Please give strength for their work. Please give encouragement to them, O oh Lord. We love you, our God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.